You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Amen. Well, uh, great to be together. Uh, it is our first service of the South Bay Church South Group. So uh, we're here. I know we've been talking about this since last summer. So it's awesome to be together. It's awesome to look out at all your faces. And uh, really, really excited. Uh, we're going to be looking in the book of John, if you want to go ahead and be turning over there in your Bible. Uh, the book of John. Uh, there's two reasons that we are doing this, uh, splitting into two groups. So the South Bay Church, if you're kind of new to the group, I just want to give you a quick history of kind of how we got here. So the LA Church of Christ is part of a family of churches all around the world called the International Churches of Christ. There's uh, more churches outside the U.S. than in the U.S. now, which is cool uh, as, it's, as we're multiplying out into the world. Uh, but uh, the church here in L.A. was planted in 1989. And uh, in downtown, so the, the beginning uh, was downtown and then spread out pretty quickly into different neighborhoods. Uh, Dust and I moved here in 1993 and uh, we were part of what was called then the South Zone. And uh, we were meeting in Long Beach, but every, still once a month or so we would still go downtown LA to be with the whole LA church. But over time as the church grew, became many, many thousands of people, we got more into our local communities. And uh, so we've been a part of what's what we know as the South Bay Church for quite a long time, a number of years now. Uh, but we, we're finding that the, the size that we've been at, we kind of plateaued a little bit for a while. Can you turn me down a little bit? It's just kind of an awful sound. It, 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 it's better if it was less of it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so as we, uh, we found that, as we, as we kind of got to this stage of, you know, 250 or so at church, it, we, we've just sort of been about the same size, so we, we've been praying and asking God, what do we do next? How do we reach our community for the, for the, uh, for the, reach the lost for the kingdom of God? How do we get the gospel into our community better? And uh, we, we, we've, after much prayer, talking to many of you guys, we've decided we wanted to start, start these two new geographic groups, but still be the South Bay Church, still come together once a month, but tackle these two different geographic groups. And the reason is two. Number one, uh, better body dynamics, I'll say. Uh, in, in Ephesians 4, this is a, a passage I'm going to keep referring to and you might get tired of, but I, I just like this passage because it, it helps me to think about the church and what, what God wants from his church. So it says, uh, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every sporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the model the Bible uses for the, the, the church often is the, a body. And in a body, you want all the parts of your body to be working and functioning and blood flow to them. And they're connected to your nervous system. Have you guys ever fallen asleep uh, and you, you were laying on your hand funny or something and you wake up in the middle of the night and your hand, it's like someone else's hand? You know, you're feeling, it just feels like meat and it's the worst feeling. You're like, ah, my hand, is it ever going to come back? 
but it always does, right? Uh, thank, I'm sure if, uh, Calvin, I'm sure long enough you would be in trouble, right? If you disconnected it for long enough, but at least, the, the, you know, a few hours while you're sleeping. But, but that's what can happen as the church gets bigger. You can have parts of the body that are a little numb. And I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm not calling out any people. But some of us can kind of get disconnected. But when you break the body down smaller and, and the, investing in the work of the church, just more people get engaged and more people get involved. And we've been seeing that as we break down the church a little bit smaller. Uh, and, and, and then... Uh, secondly, I think we can reach more people. So the first thing is better body dynamics. The second thing is reaching more people with the gospel. Because, uh, you know, we all have, all of us are willing to drive up to Manhattan Beach to go to church. But, you know, if you, especially some of you guys who live in San Pedro, you might have neighbors. You say, yeah, I go to a great church. Where is it? Up oh, it's Maricosta. What's that? Maricosta High School. You never heard of it? No. Okay, well, it's up in Manhattan Beach. Where is that? You know what I mean? Uh, just just uh, people are very local, right? So the idea of, of having church closer to some of the people that you're trying to reach with the gospel, it allows us to reach more people with the gospel. The other thing is, when, when our group is smaller like this, we can kind of know who's new, right? A little bit more than the, when the church gets bigger, you don't know so much who's new and, and who can we reach out to and kind of being aware of, of, of just welcoming people and pulling people in. Now, we should always be welcoming no matter what, but it just helps when it's smaller to kind of know everybody, right? So that's kind of why we're doing that. And our goal as leaders is this... Uh, verse says is to equip you. We want you to be equipped. Um, and, and so having the tools that you need. So a couple tools that you have that we have for you today uh, before you leave, I want to make sure you pick up. Those of you who went through the first steps training, we have a book for you. So how many of you still need a book? Okay, a few of you do. So make sure you get that book before you leave. Most of you got it. That sounds good. The other thing is we have Easter invitations. How many of you guys have Easter invitations yet? Okay, so most of you don't. Raise your hand if you don't have Easter invitations. Okay, so I solemnly swear to pass out Easter invitations. No, just kidding. Uh, but those are for you. That's an equipment, a, a tool for you to be able to, to, to tell people about Easter. So make sure you get those before you leave. Because we want to have impact for God. We want to reach people with the gospel. And uh, as, as I'm looking at, at this ministry and this new role that we're doing, Dustin and I leading this group, uh, I just really, I've been praying, God, please help us to reach people. You know, our, our world is a lost world. And I don't know if, about you, but I've noticed a shift in our world in the last maybe 20, 25 years where it's almost like the, the world is sort of anti-God, anti-Christian, more than ever before, it seems like, in our society. Or at least in the past, at least most people had some, in, our, in America or in our community, had more some, somewhat sense of faith. There was kind of acceptable. A lot of people went to church, that kind of thing. It's becoming less and less like that. More and more uh, sort of polytheistic, more and more atheistic. Uh, even, it can be, get to the point where even you feel like, uh, at, at your work or in your neighborhood, people might look at you funny if they know you're a Christian. You know, just that's how, how our world is becoming. And, and in a way, it's becoming more and more like the, the world of the Roman Empire, the world when the gospel really thrived. And so we're going to look at how did the gospel thrive in that setting in, 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 the, in the first century? Because it wasn't cool to be a Christian in the first century. Uh, the Roman world was different than our world in that it was very, very religious, but it was all these different gods. You had gods for everything, a god for this business, a god for that business, a god for this household, that household. And, and to be a Christian meant you rejected all those other gods. So by doing that, people felt like you were rejecting them. You were rejecting their business. You were rejecting their worldview. So the Christians were sort of looked down on by everybody. 
And yet, the church still thrived. How did it do that? How did the church thrive in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment that was so against Christianity? Uh, well, we're going to look at four, th- four ways that the church really thrived from, uh, from John 4. And the title of the lesson is Come and See. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Open life, open eyes, a heart of joy, and a community of faith. So go ahead and turn over to John chapter 4. I'm going to grab my water while we're doing that. John chapter 4. Do you guys see my water bottle over there? Oh, thank you. I'll take that. Awesome. Okay, John chapter 4. So the book of John, this come and see, is kind of a theme in the book of John. What I mean by come and see is, so in John 1, you have Andrew has an interaction with Jesus. And Andrew becomes convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, this Uh, This figure that was prophesied about in the Old Testament and all the Jews were looking forward to the Messiah coming the anointed one coming who would fulfill these different prophecies in the Old Testament that the prophets had been saying and Andrews and so there was this kind of vibe in Judaism of looking for the Messiah they they realized the timing was right because if you look at the book of Daniel and the things that Daniel said would happen politically the timing was right for the in the Roman Empire for the Messiah to come so there was a real um, vibe among Jews of who is the Messiah? Is the Messiah coming? So Andrew gets convinced Jesus is the Messiah. So he goes and gets Peter and brings Peter and says, come and see, come and see this guy. I think he might be the Messiah. Then Andrew and and, and Peter both interact with Jesus and then they go, oh, we got to go get Nathaniel. So they go get Nathaniel. They say, Nathaniel, you got to come and see who this Messiah is. And that's this scene right here from the book of John. It's a movie. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's a really good, good movie. Although Jesus is blonde, like, too often. But besides that, it's good. I like his acting. Uh, he's that Irish guy from Lost. Um, he's really good. Anyways, uh, this is that scene where Nathaniel is, is interacting with Jesus. But, but, but the idea is that, you know, when you get to know Jesus, when you interact with Jesus, you want others to come and see. You want others to come and see who, who he is. And you want to bring others along. And so that's a theme you see in, in the book of John. And so by John, John 4, we kind of all know the story of uh, where the, the Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. We've probably read that before. If you haven't read it before, read it on your own this week. It's a great story. We're going to pick up kind of right as the story ends. But the context is Jesus is going through Samaria. He's on his way from Jerusalem, from Judea, the area of Judea, up to Galilee. And to, to do that, he has to get through Samaria. So if you picture... Uh, you know, the map of the, the, the Holy Land, you know, there's the Dead Sea down at the bottom, which is kind of a big teardrop shape, and then up at the top is a little, a little teardrop, and that's the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, and then connecting them is the Jordan River. So down here in the bottom is Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, it's up on a, on a mountaintop, that's where the, kind of the seat of government of Israel. So Jesus had been doing ministry there in, in Jerusalem, but he, he grew up in Nazareth, which was outside of Galilee, and then his early ministry was up in Galilee, up at the top of the map. So he's going back to Galilee, and there's two ways to get back to Galilee. You could go straight up, which is going through Samaria, or you could go across the Jordan River and over and around, which was twice as long. Why do you think Jews did that? Why would they go twice as long to get to Galilee? Anybody know? Safer? Not exactly. huh? They wanted to have nothing to do with, not the Galileans, but the Samaritans. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. Anybody know why that was? 
Somebody besides Lynn, she already answered. Mixed with other nations. Okay, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the Israel, early Israel kingdom was, was divided into these different tribes. You ever heard of the tribes of Israel, right? And so the 10 northern tribes all were conquered in, seven, in the 700s, and they were uh, conquered by the nation of Assyria and carried off. And they were sort of scattered. We, we lo they lost their history. And the people who were left intermarried with people who were, from, who were from Assyrians. For Jews, everything was about their bloodline and keeping things pure. That's very a Jewish way of looking at things and, and very much the Old Testament, keeping things pure to try to keep the law. And so the, Jew, the Jews, the, 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 the other two tribes, they were also carried off into captivity in 586 by the, the Babylonians. But they came back. They came back into exile. They kept their country. They stayed true to the faith. So they looked down on these northerners, the northern tribes of Israel, because they had compromised in a way. Do you know what I mean? And, and then they had intermarried and they had mixed. And so hundreds of years go by. And there's all kinds of history of animosity between these two groups, between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans uh, that, that wanted to, to be able to worship in Jerusalem and the Jews wouldn't let them. So they made their own temple and they made their own kind of headquarters of, of, of their religion. And so there was a, a big debate about that. So that you notice the woman at the well even talks to Jesus about that. So that's the context. Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. And yet here is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman and asking her for water. And uh, she, she, they have, start, have a conversation and Jesus tells her, I will give you living water. And anyone who comes to me, I will give them streams of living water that will flow from within them. And then in the course of the conversation, and we have a little bit of it, we have kind of the, a snapshot of that conversation, but he tells her all about her own life. And her, her own life was one that was not very reputable. She was living with a man who was not her husband, which the Jews didn't do that, or Samaritans even didn't do that. And she'd had five other husbands already, so she had an issue with relationships. And, uh, you know, she, she was kind of an outcast. A lot of scholars think that was why she was getting water at that time of day and, uh, and, and, and from that, that place. So after they end up having this conversation where at the end of it, he tells her, I am the Messiah. She, she says, I know someday the Messiah is going to come. And he says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Uh, so it says in verse 27 of John 4, Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. So not only is he talking with a Samaritan, he's talking with a woman. And this society was very uh, patriarchal, very down on women. Um, the, the, the rabbis had this saying, it would be better for, for the Torah to be burned than to be read by a woman. That's not good, right? That's pretty bad. Um, so, so sometimes people say things about the Bible being, you know, not very positive about women. In, in contrast to, um, the, the, in context of the culture of the time, the Bible was revolutionary in the way that it lifted up women, the way it treated women. And here's Jesus talking to a woman in, in public, which uh, was shameful for a rabbi to do in their culture. It says, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? That was a good decision by the guys, you know, to go, oh, Jesus knows what he's doing. And you kind of get that after a while, the guys start to realize Jesus knows what he's doing. Uh, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. So again, we see this idea of come and see. Come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. And there's a few things we want to look at about this woman. Number one, 
open life. Her life was opened. She, she, she was exposed, you know. She, at first she tries to have this kind of religious conversation with Jesus. He cuts right through that and talks about her real life situation. But she is willing to share that with the, the people of her community. She leaves her water jug there. What does that tell you that she left her water jug there? She was coming back, right? She's, she, she's like so amazed at this encounter with Jesus. She leaves her water, water jug and goes, I got to go tell other people and I got to bring them back. And she says, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. She's not hiding who she is. Now, how much did she really know about Jesus? She'd only had this one conversation. She had the religious teaching of her Samaritan upbringing, which was some uh, concept of the Messiah, but she didn't really know all that much, right? She doesn't give them... Uh, this deep theology or this deep explanation of the Trinity or uh, substitutional atonement or premillennialism, or, you know, some of the things, these deep theological issues. She doesn't have anything to, do, to, to know about any of that. She just knows this is this guy. He might be the Messiah. Come and see. And I mention that because I know we've been training for a while on, on first steps and doctrine and, and, and being able to correctly handle the word of truth. And our goal is that everyone here be what... Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 says to be a, a worker approved by God with handling the word of truth. Like we want everybody to feel like, okay, I have the equipment. I know how to handle the Bible. That's good. But even if you don't, you can still be effective. Because here's a woman who doesn't know much about Jesus except he might be the Messiah and he knows me. He's told me everything I ever did. And he didn't, he, she must have not felt judged by him, right? So if you have felt like you have encountered Jesus or if you have felt like Jesus had had an, has had any kind of impact on your life, you are qualified to make a difference in the lives of other people by just having the same message. Come and see. Come and see this Jesus. I, I like that her message isn't even, uh, he is the Messiah. I know it. I can prove it. It's just, I think he might be the Messiah, you know? That just gives me hope that even if we have doubts or even if we don't have it all figured out, if we know where the answers are found and we lead others to those answers, I want you just to come along with me and see. And I, I hope that you will follow this woman with having an open life and being willing to, to kind of share who you are. I'm afraid that too many of us, you know, we're, we're here on Sunday and we're worshiping God and that's great, but during the week, maybe our, our faith is sort of kept hidden or our faith isn't open to the world. Uh, yet Jesus said, you don't take a lamp and light it and then put it under a bowl. That defeats the purpose of the lamp, right? He says, you put it on a stand so that the, the whole house is lit up by this lamp. In the same way, let your light shine. So those of us who have faith or the, those of us who have come to know Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, that should, should saturate everything we do. We should have an open life. Again, it doesn't mean you have all the answers, but it means that, hey, come and see. You know, an example of this might be uh, if you are, are married and you have a job and maybe you're going through something with your, with your spouse or maybe you're going through something with your kids, maybe you have kids, you know, and, 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 and let's say that you and your wife are in the middle of a bump, you know, you're, you're having a difficulty and you're at work and you're, you just got off the phone with your wife and you're frustrated, right? Uh, I know that probably hasn't happened to anybody here, but that could happen. You know, what this looks like is, is you know, your coworker, hey, what's wrong, you know? You don't like badmouth your wife. You say, well, here, here's my deal. I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm trying to follow Jesus. And here's what I know I'm supposed to be, but here's what I feel like. Here's this verse that tells me I'm supposed to love my, my wife like Christ loved the church. Let me show you this verse. 
can you believe that? You know, like I, like I'm supposed to care for my own body and, and, and feed myself. I'm supposed to take care of all her needs. I don't really feel like that. She's being a nag, you know, whatever. Like maybe you're, you're real with where you are, but you're also real with your faith. Do you know what I mean? That's what it means to be open with your life. And I think you see that in this woman. Come and see this man. And he, he told me everything I ever did, and it had an impact. Uh, second thing we see uh, in this verse, let's ver look at verse 31. Open eyes. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open, the eye, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. I like that, um, you know, Jesus always keeps his, his disciples guessing a little bit, you know. Um, he says this, I have food to eat you know nothing about. He likes to sort of bring up questions or say things that sort of provoke people. Like you even see this a couple chapters earlier with Nicodemus. You must be born again. Unless someone's born again, they'll never see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, born again? You got to climb back into your mother's womb and be born again? That's, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, with the woman at the well, a, 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 verse, or a few verses earlier, he says, um, you know, I will, if, if you asked me, I would have given you living water. And, and to a Jew, living water, or to a Samaritan, means running water. Or uh, like water in a, in a river is living water. Or water from a stream is living water. I would have given you living water, not water from this well that's just sitting there. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? Give me this water. Um, he, he likes to ask questions or kind of provoke people. Here is the same type of thing. I have food to eat you know nothing about. And the, the disciples are kind of like, huh? Could someone have given him food? And, you know... Why does he do that? I think, I think he does that because he's trying to constantly get them to open their eyes and ears to spiritual realities. And so he's saying that all the time, you know, let him who has ears, let him hear. And here he says, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. He's trying to get us to elevate our thinking. He's trying to get us to, to look up from our worldly surroundings and the things that we kind of get all caught up in of just the here and now and the everyday and the mundane and the uh, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear and just kind of the things that keep us busy. Jesus is always trying to get us to look up and, and look at bigger spiritual things. And, uh, you know, he says, what does he say his food is? What does he say right there? Anybody? What's that? To do the will of him who sent me is my food. So isn't that kind of interesting that doing would be sustaining, that energy output would give you energy input? Yeah. It seems kind of like a paradox. My food is to do the will. My food is to work. How is that true? Well, I'll tell you, this, is, this really works in our life. When we, when we invest ourselves in spiritual things for God, when we sacrifice, lay down our own life, Jesus says, if you lose your life, you will gain it. If you deny yourself, you will find your life. You know, you can't seek your own life and find it. You have to lay down your life and then you find life to the full. Um, it's a paradox. But the more we do the will of the Father instead of our own will, the more we find fulfillment and sustenance and the more we get filled up by God. But, it, but it's kind of a daily decision to put our will below the will of God, right? And, uh, and, and to have open eyes to what God is doing. Yeah. Um, how do we get eyes that are open to what God is doing? I think a practical thing is just to 
Uh, number one, spend time in prayer. Uh, spend time with the Lord because God will open your eyes. Jesus himself, there's those verses that said he often withdrew to lonely places where he prayed. Uh, there's an example in Mark where very early in the morning while it was still dark, he went to a solitary place where he prayed. I think if Jesus needed time with the Father, how much more do we need time with the Father? And if you don't have a consistent daily routine in your prayer life, you will not have open eyes spiritually. You're just going to be caught up in the things the world is caught up in. But if you spend consistent time with God in prayer, daily consistent time with God, your eyes will be open to how God is working. Um, the second thing is then to, 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 to pray to God, but then look and see how God works in your daily life after your prayer. You know, there's a psalm that says, uh, I, in the morning I lay my request before you and then I wait in eager expectation. So is there something about spending time with God and then, and then going about your day and seeing how God works? It, it opens your eyes. Well, God is working here and God is working there. And it, it, it's a daily battle, um, you know, of, of, of are you willing to, to, to kind of just stay busy with your life or are you willing to kind of lift your eyes and look at how God is working? Um, just kind of one example of this this week. Um, you know, we have our Easter service coming up and, and so... I was playing volleyball at the Y on Friday, and I was on my way in, and I was like, oh, I, sh I should take some e invitations to Easter in, you know, duh. Um, so I go back to the car, get some invitations, and go in and play volleyball, and I'm talking to different people. And these are different people I've kind of built some relationships with. But it's kind of awkward, you know, we're playing volleyball, I, I, you know, uh, how do I share with people? So I just start having conversations, one after another after another, like four or five different conversations. I didn't really want to, you know, there, was, there wasn't anything in me that was like, woo, I want to tell these people, but I knew that, you know, I want to have eyes that are open to what God is doing and who knows how God can work. And so, you know, one conversation, another conversation, and, and uh, you know, this one guy was like, oh yeah, I'll come, I'll bring my whole family, you know, I was like, oh, amen, you know, and then, you, but, it, but it made me feel like what he said, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me, because amen. I felt all fired up and encouraged, way more encouraged than when I went in there, just by the fact that somebody was open and wants to you know, participate. So it's amazing how that, how that works. When you just invest for God, then God fills you up. Amen? Yeah. Uh, that brings us to the second, uh, third thing is a heart of joy. Um, in verse 6, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so the sower and reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and other reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He, he talks about this. It's kind of a, a, a weird thing that he might not immediately get us, this idea of the sower and the reaper being glad together. That, that, we don't, that doesn't really hit us because we don't have the same mindset as, as, a, as a Jew in the first century. So th there's this idea in Judaism of sowing is hard and sorrowful. Like, remember uh, Psalm 126? It says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. You guys know this? So this idea that sowing is, is hard work and it's a bummer, but eventually you're going to reap. Eventually it's going to be worth something. But there's these different prophecies that talk about how eventually the reaping, there's going to be so much bounty that it's going to overtake the sowing. You know, normally you sow and then four months and then the harvest. And this wasn't even uh, that time of year. So what Jesus was talking about, the sowing, the, the, don't say four more months and then the harvest. He's saying in the, in the past there's your sow and then four months, then the harvest. But there was this time predicted in the Old Testament that 
there would be so much bounty that you're sowing and reaping and it's just all bounty all the time, you know, and, and that's kind of this vision of God is just working and other people have done the hard work way in the past and now just God is just moving in incredible ways and God's spirit is being poured out and everybody is, uh, you know, old men and young men and, 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 you know, God is just working in all nations and, you know, all these prophecies are coming true. That's kind of what Jesus is pointing to when he says the sower and the reaper will be glad together. Does that make sense? Yes. And so it's all about uh, the, the joy of what is God doing? God is amazing. God is working. That's what you sense in this woman. This joy of, wow, God is, you got to come and see. you got to come see this guy. He might be the Messiah and he's got a heart. She has a heart of joy. And when we, when we have that kind of attitude, the joy of our salvation, I think impact on others and having an open life and having open eyes, that comes naturally when we have a heart of joy. And, you know, you might feel like your joy has been lost, you know, to difficulties, you know, being choked by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, the challenges of, of things that your kids go through. And I get that. I know what that's like to go through those kinds of things. And yet, if you are saved, if you if you've got a relationship with God, if you have heaven to look forward to, you have a reason to be joyful today. You have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. You know, God has not held your sins against you. Uh, you know, sometimes we forget the joy of our salvation. And I want to remind you of, of when David prayed in Psalm uh, 52, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, God. We, you know, that might be a prayer that you need to pray. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Um, do you believe that you are a miracle today? You know, we heard some testimonies a couple weeks ago, and that was the theme of those testimonies. Come and see. See who Jesus is in my life. See what God has done in my life. You sitting there, if, if you are a, a, a saved believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, your life is a miracle. You just sometimes forget it. And so I want to remind you of that. I want to remind you of that amazing, amazing grace that we sang about earlier. That, that you've been set free, that your chains are gone. You know, that's something we need daily re reminding of, and daily reminding about. Uh, personally, you know, I've been trying to sort of rewire my brain lately. There's this idea that your brain has, uh, has plasticity, you know, that you're able to change your thinking uh, by just thinking good thoughts. This is kind of the latest science of, of the brain, that by thinking certain thoughts, you can rewire your brain. And it's, of course, it's there in Scripture, you know, whatever is lovely, whatever is praiseworthy, if anything is excellent, think about such things, Philippians 4. But I've been really trying to practice that. We had a, a, 2017 was the worst year of my life, and I won't go into all the reasons why, but there was a lot of bad stuff in 2017. And I feel like I was just getting beat up, you know, like I was on the ropes. And so 2018, my whole goal, my mantra was, let it go. And what I meant by let it go was just let God do whatever he's doing and just... Just go along for the ride and, you know, just try to be joyful and, and, and change my thinking in terms of trying to control everything and trying to get the outcomes I want. Just let it go. God's working, you know. I've got Jesus. I've got grace. I've got people around me that love me. Just try to be positive. And it's amazing how that's helped me to, you know, even just to smile and just be like, okay, God's, God's got this, you know, relax. And um, God's got a plan. And, and, I gotta count my blessings. I gotta cast my anxieties on him because he cares for me, first Peter says. So maybe you're, you know, in a similar situation where you feel like you've been swallowed up by 
anxieties or by worries or by difficulties or that kind of thing. And I just want to encourage you to, to, to pray to God to restore the joy of your salvation. Count your blessings. Uh, God has done so much and God will do so much for us. Amen? Last thing is a community of faith. In verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. So some commentators think, you know, when Jesus said, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. Jesus wasn't talking about physical uh, fields, but he was talking about these people that, you know, the woman had left her jar. She's gone back to the town. The disciples come and they're interacting with him. And then he says, look. And so they turn around and, and the people are coming down from the from the, the, the town. The town was uphill from there. Come, she's, they're all coming. This whole group of people is all coming because of the woman's testimony. And Jesus says, look at your eyes and look at the fields that are ripe for harvest as all these people, all these villagers are coming in. And then because of this woman's faith, because she, she, you know, Jesus shared with her, then she shared with them, then all of this whole crowd gathers, says they came to have their own faith. And so they've gone through this, this three-step process of in, being introduced to Jesus, the introduction to Jesus, number, number two, the connection to Jesus and, and intimacy, growing and learning to know who Jesus is, and then number three, recognition and surrender. They say, he really is the savior of the world. So all of these people came to believe, and all these people came to see Jesus as the savior of the world, who he really is, the Messiah, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, he's the savior of the world. Uh, you might not know that the, that title, the Savior of the World, was a, a title given to the Roman emperor at the time that John was written. So by putting this in the text, he's being very subversive. You know that, no, Jesus is the Savior of the world, not Caesar. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And, and so we see these four things that this is how the early church made a huge impact, that their lives were open, their eyes were open, they had hearts full of joy, and they formed this community of faith that the, the Roman Empire was not able to squelch, that was not able to defeat, that was not able to be destroyed. Uh, John, the book of John was the latest of all the Gospels written and one of the last books to be written in the, in the New Testament. So the time that John was written, the church was under heavy persecution. So you can see, you know, I've been learning this in school to not just read the text for kind of what it says and what was happening then, but also think about what was happening when that text was written. Because there, there's kind of three levels you can read. There's the level of what it says, then there's the level of what was happening, you know, at the time it was written, and how did it, how did the first people who received the text get it? What did it mean to them? And then number three, what does it mean to us today? But that second level, those Christians were heavily persecuted. They were being thrown to the lions. They were being crucified. They were being, they were being beheaded. Uh, you know, they, they, there was this uh, idea that if you didn't confess Caesar as Lord, then you weren't allowed to be a part of, a, of an alliance of, of, of merchants. So your, your business would suffer unless you made Caesar Lord. All kinds of stuff, all kinds of ways that they were under all these pressures. And yet because of this kind of faith, of come and see faith, the gospel spread. It wasn't through big evangelistic campaigns like, you know, let's put banners everywhere. It was just word of mouth, just individualistic uh, 
people, you know, come and see. Let, let me just show you. Let me, you know, one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. So that's the way we're going to have impact. If every single person here is just like this woman, come and see. And your, your heart is open, or your life is open, your eyes are open, and, and you've got a heart of joy, and you want to be a part of this community of faith. And that's who we are together, that we can learn from each other. And if you've been around a while, you know, I know some of you are, are older Christians, you've been around a long time, but you, your faith gets reignited when, when you see someone else who's younger, and their faith gets ignited. And then, you know, you, you, you help each other, right? And you, you're, the body's built up as each part is, is happening. Each part is doing its work. Each part is invested. Each part is growing. Um, so a couple things about uh, our service on Easter. And then um, we're going to have communion together, and we're going to close with, a, with sh a little bit of sharing with each other. Um, so Easter, we are going to be, two weeks from today, we're going to be at, at the Botanic Gardens, which is uh, just a little bit south uh, of PCH on Crenshaw. Um, we're going to be in the, the multi-purpose room there. We'll have breakfast at 945, uh, and then the service will be at 10. We have to set up our own chairs. So here's what we're proposing, is that the the teen ministry become our chair setter uppers. How would you guys feel about that, teens? Excited? So we've talked to the we've talked to the parents about this. So what we were thinking is the teens get there an hour early. They can hang out with each other, set up the chairs quickly. The parents can interact and have breakfast, and then uh, you know we'll see how that goes. So so we'll tell you more about that, teens. Also, a lot of you guys have. Um, signed up for different areas of service so you'll be contacted this week or next about that area of service you know i know there's people signed up to help with the the, the first impressions with ushering with our tech ministry with um the, the the music ministry so we'll we'll those team leaders will be contacting you this week but I, I pray that we can really be this community of faith, you know, for people who come on Easter. Easter is a time of year that people are just thinking about Jesus, you know. Usually there's, a, in the magazine rack, there's always something about Jesus. There's always something on TV about Jesus. It's a great time of year to, to tell people, come and see. Come and see who Jesus is. And so what communion is, is it's a time as a community of remembering Jesus together. That's what uh, the first century believers did. They would gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the dead, to break bread together and remember his body and blood. And so I want to do that um, uh, right now. Before I pray for communion, I want to have just a, about five minutes or so of sharing. Uh, anybody that wants to share, just stand up and share. What's, in a few words, what is Jesus in your life? Like if you were going to say, come and see, here's one thing that Jesus means to me in my life. And then after a little bit of sharing, open sharing, then I'll, I'll pray for communion. We can share that time together. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 